All right, let's get, let's get to God's Word this morning, Mark chapter 15. I uh, was going to do John 19, and I switched it up this morning, decided that the, the crucifixion text that I preferred to do was actually Mark 15, so I don't know if it'll be on the slide for you. may have changed it too late um, for the sound room. But we'll be picking up in verse 16 and read through verse 32, and then we'll drop down to Leviticus chapter 16 and read a couple of verses there as well as we continue our series working through the Apostles' Creed. As we were last week, we continue this week on the phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried, and descended into hell is where we are at. So Mark chapter 15, picking up in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed them in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross." So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Then turn over in your Bibles to look at the screen. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 20 through 22. This is, this day is, in Leviticus 16, is given the account of how God established what was called the Day of Atonement, where the people's sins would be atoned for, and there was two goats. The first goat would be slaughtered, and the second goat, we'll find out what happens to him here, picking up in verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This ends the reading of God's word. May the grass wither and the flower fade but the word of our God may it stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, the cross is a big deal. It's a lot to take in. And Lord, there's so much to apply and connect to our lives. Lord, I pray that this morning, as we address maybe some sensitive topics in our own life, that your spirit would be so kind to comfort through the words of the cross and to open a door to a pathway of healing by the cross for the glory of your name. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. In Leviticus 16, as we just read, there were two goats. 
as the first goat, Jesus, and Jesus represents both these goats in going to the cross. As I mentioned last week, the cross is so heavy and weighty. There's so much going on there. It's hard to capture it all simply in one week. And really just two weeks is not enough to capture it. But using this symbol or this parallel of Leviticus 16 with these two goats, Jesus fulfills the roles of both of these goats on the cross. Last week, we looked how he fulfilled the role of the first goat, where Jesus went and he was punished for our sins. He experienced hell is what we focused on last week. He did not simply experience physical suffering. He experienced the full wrath of God poured out upon him for the wrath that we deserved. And big biblical kind of theological words, if you like those kind of things, this is what we call is the act of propitiation. Propitiation is the big word there. Where he appeased the wrath of God. He took all the wrath that we deserved upon himself. But in Leviticus 16, there's not just one goat, there's two goats. And as the second goat, Jesus as the second goat, we are shown that Jesus came not only to experience the punishment of sin, the hell on our behalf, but that he has also come to remove the stain of sin from us. I use the word stain carefully there. Because I think this is one of the things that is, is in my experience with Christians and particularly if we, don't, if we fail to understand the full weight of the cross and all that went on there, is what we often think of is kind of the baseline thought about what happened on the cross was Jesus was punished for my sins. And that is absolutely true. And I'm forgiven for my sins. But even though we use language like cleansing and removing, I'm not sure that we live in light of the reality of the fact that Jesus didn't simply come to remove the punishment for your sins, He came to remove the stain of the sin that is stained down to the very depths of your being. To remove the stain of sin in your life. Often you would hear and think, Christians, we have such a, I talked about this last week, an inferiority complex. I think so much of that is a sense that while God has, has punished our sins, that still before him we have this uncleanliness, this unworthiness, this lack of acceptability, and that we are stained before God permanently. This sense of uncleanliness and unworthiness and unacceptability is is called the word shame. This is what we feel, shame. And the beauty of the gospel and the elaborate nature of Jesus' sufferings is that he came not simply to physically die, not simply to take the punishment for our sins, but he came to clean us up from the very core of our being to remove our shame. So as we dive into this and dive into this understanding of the cross And looking at this, we're going to get to the cross in just a minute. But before we get there, we have to understand our shame first and foremost. So your three points this morning is shame identified, shame experienced, and then shame removed. I preached on this same topic a number of years back here at King's Chapel. But it comes up again as we look at the cross. And so you may find some of this familiar. Some of it has changed to fit the topic today a little bit more. But again, as I I said a couple years ago when I preached on this topic of shame and the cross... There's a book that I would, as I even get into it, because I'm going to quote from it constantly this morning, is a book called Shame Interrupted by Ed Welch. He's a Christian counselor up in Philadelphia. I would highly encourage you. It often goes on sale for 2 or $3 on Kindle. It is an unbelievably good book. It's one of my top five or ten favorites. I go back to it often. So first, we've got to look at shame identified, and we're going to look at how we define and describe shame. Ed Welch describes it this way. His definition of shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. 
And shame, in the experience of shame, you feel exposed and humiliated. He continues to go on in his description and definition of shame. He says this, And shame, you are disgraced because you have acted in a less than human way. You are treated in a way that was less than human. Or you are associated with something less than human. And there are witnesses to it. Heard the testimony this week of R.A. Dickey, who was a Cy Young Award winner in the, the Major League Baseball a couple years ago in 2012. He throws a knuckleballer. And his, he was giving his testimony about how he was abused sexually as a child. And he says he remembers the, the feeling the most poignantly as an eight and nine-year-old boy when that happened was that he was less than human. This is the experience of shame. And there's three key words. There's a Trinitarian kind of focus in shame. Three key words that people bring up to help define or understand what shame is. So these three words are this. The experience of it is nakedness, rejection, and contamination. As those who feel shame, these are the words that they feel. Nakedness, rejection, contamination. Nakedness is the feeling of being exposed. Rejection is the feeling of being reject, of worthless and unacceptable in the eyes of others. And contamination is the feeling of being dirty and unclean. And these feelings of exposure, worthlessness, and uncleanliness take hold in our hearts because of our experiences in our broken worlds. And they are many. Shame comes because of something perhaps that happened to you. Perhaps it was a one-time significant traumatic event. It was when father walked out the door and never came back, and that has shaped the way you view yourself, that dad walked away from you. Or a similar experience, those of you who have been through a divorce, and you were the spouse that wanted to stay in, and years afterwards, the experience of shame is to say, there's something wrong with me because somebody who knew me that intimately rejected me. That's shame. Shame is those, it's this feeling that some has experienced who've been abused in all sorts of ways in their childhood, experienced that one perhaps awful night in their childhood or in their college years, and the shame that person feels, they feel dirty, frankly, and affects their life in all sorts of places, even into their marital lives, even as Christians, that they never experience the intimacy and the desire that they so wish, because all intimacy still feels like exposure, and they feel dirty afterwards. Shame comes because of something that happened to you, maybe not a single, singular one-time traumatic event, but it's something you was simply the verbiage in your life over and over and over again from a parent or a teacher or a friend that communicated to you your worthlessness. Here's how shame works. For years, you'll hear these words communicated in various ways from other people. You are not acceptable. You are a mistake. You are not worthy. And eventually what happens is over the time as you hear those words, you begin to take hold of them and believe them yourselves so that you say them to your own self. No longer is it you are unacceptable, but you begin to say, I am not acceptable. I am not worthy. I am a mistake. This is shame. Shame comes also because of your association with something shameful. In particular, in old tradition, in traditional societies, particularly Asian societies, if you think about the, the key is, the high point is what it, the, the view of the whole community. And if something, if you were to shame, bring shame upon the home community, you may as well die, and many do. That's when they commit suicide, because they cannot bear the shame they brought upon their culture and their place. This is the feeling that minority cultures feel, even in experience in America, where they are not the majority culture, and they feel looked upon, they feel exposed at all times. It is this experience of a shame by association, because of maybe something that's been done to your people group. Shame comes because of something also that you did, or that you continue to do. And yes, here I'm talking about sin. 
There is a connection between shame and guilt, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But we are ashamed of what we do, our addictive behaviors, the sins that we think are beyond any of the sins of all of our friends. Anybody in church, if they knew about our sin, they would shun us and they would reject us and they would force us out. We have shame because of our guilt, because of our sin. And we are ashamed because our sin is shameful. It's true. And here I brought up shame and guilt. There is, we must make a little brief distinguishing mark between the two, between shame and guilt. They are well connected and they play to, into one another. Let me give you a little bit of difference between the two of them, though. Guilt lives in the courtroom where you stand alone before a judge. Shame, or guilt in that, in that setting says you are responsible, you are wrong, you have sinned. And what guilt needs is forgiveness, and this passage certainly addresses that. But it goes beyond what Jesus does here in Leviticus 16. It goes beyond simply the forgiveness of guilt and moves into the realm of shame. Shame lives in community. And the community can, can, can act as the judge. But here's what shame says. Shame says you don't belong, you're worthless, you're unacceptable, you're unclean, and you're disgraced because you have sinned or because others have sinned against you. The shame person needs forgiveness, yes, but they also need cleansing and love and acceptance. And here what we see is that shame is not all bad. And that is important to realize in this sense. Shame is something that we need and it cannot be ignored. Often much, much of the ways of, of just secular approaches to dealing with shame in people's lives is to reject it or ignore it or wash over it. But shame is a consequence it is a consequence of living in a broken world because of the sin that we do or the sin that is done against us. And it's a pain in us. The shame causes a pain in us that functions kind of like our nervous system functions. If you simply get rid of the pain and do not get rid of the source of the pain, you're in deep trouble. In the same way with shame, if all you do is try to get rid of the feelings of shame, get whitewashed that part of your life out and don't deal with the source of these issues, what has caused you to feel shame then you will become sociopathic, unable to truly feel all that's going on in your life. The Apostle Paul calls us, calls people and even churches to feel shame because that is the beginning of healing, to recognize and name our shame. 1 Corinthians 5, he says the church there should be ashamed because they are not pursuing wise peacemaking. And so shame cannot be ignored. But certainly, because it is such a painful experience, we often, we may not try to ignore it, but we simply try to whitewash over it, or we give surface-level answers to it. Ed Welch says that one of the ways we try to clean up our shame is we, we put words in front of our shame. And particularly, he says this, we put the words, I feel as if, in front of our pain. So we say, I feel as if I am an outsider, or I feel as if my, my wife does not love me. I feel as if my husband does not love me. I feel as if... I am the less favored child. I feel as if I am a piece of, and you fill in the blank. What's the verbiage that you use? I feel stupid. Well, she goes on to say that we cannot clean up shame by simply trying to convince ourselves that shame is not real because it is real. The woman who has been abused and feels sexually contaminated because the reality is, is she has been. That is the pain that she feels, and it is not lying in that moment. If someone throws mud at you, and it wasn't simply you who put mud on you, and someone throws it on you, you are indeed dirty. And the scriptures take these things seriously. And so if we're going to deal with a contamination because of our brokenness and our sinfulness that bubbles up from within us, or the contamination of sin that has been thrown upon us and mucked up our lives, living in our broken, abusive world, then we have to deal with the shame that we face seriously with something truly powerful. We cannot paint over it. 
And the Bible doesn't paint over it either. Each of you has a story of shame in your life. You've experienced it in some way, shape, or form. I have no abuse in my background, and yet there is shame that pocks my thoughts left and right. The Bible takes it seriously. Do you? Do you acknowledge your own story? There's a story of shame in the Bible from the very beginning. We see it talks about this. Between guilt and shame, it's interesting. The scriptures, we give more attention to the guilt factor, and that's very important. But I think the scriptures actually give more weight to shame. It's more commonly talked about. In the scriptures, you'll find shame under the words nakedness, dishonor, disgrace, defilement, uncleanliness. And those words are used ten times more often than words that are associated with guilt. Because this is the experience that we feel so often in this life. The concept of shame dominates the pages of Scripture, and it dominates it from the very beginning. Before the fall of man, before Adam and Eve have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how does it describe their life? Genesis 2.25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Naked, and they were not ashamed. Utterly and absolutely exposed, but they don't feel exposed. They don't feel ashamed. We were designed to walk with one another and walk before God unashamedly, rejoicing and dancing before him. And yet in our sin, when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and man fell, here's the experience now in Genesis 3, 7, and 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, Adam and Eve, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. What do they do? What is the immediate and initial response to sin? Hide. Hide. Make fig leaves. Hide from one another first. Hide from God. It's interesting, even in their conversation with God, they hide, don't they? What do they use to hide? They lie. They blame shift. That's hiding. They're hiding their shame. And one by one, we see shame's trinity of nakedness and rejection and contamination invades humanity in their life. Nakedness came first here, doesn't it? That's interesting. For Adam and Eve, the sense of nakedness dominated from the very moment that they sinned. They hoped fig leaves would cover them up, but they had an uncomfortable feeling that God could see right through that, right through their very souls, and so they had to go hide behind a bush as well. You can't miss the message of shame's debut in the scriptures here in Genesis 3. And it's an interesting one. Shame says this in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are saying, I am unrepresentable, unpresentable before the Lord. I am unpresentable. But the question, the key question, a core question is this. Unpresentable before whom? First, they are unpresentable before one another. There is a horizontal dimension to our shame in this life. We hide from one another, from the community. But we also see it is vertical. The shame is vertical. They hide and hide their shame from God. What's interesting, when God kicks them out of the garden, there's a curious amnesia, Ed Welch calls it where we continue to feel shame in front of one another, but we have completely forgotten about being ashamed in front of God. We continue to feel shame in front of one another, even though primarily, primarily the core reason why we feel ashamed is because we have sinned against the holy and awesome and mighty God. And therefore, that relationship has to be addressed before any shame that we have in our marital lives and relational lives needs to be addressed elsewhere. Ever since Adam and Eve, we have hid our uncleanliness our shame with fig leaves. 
The fig leaves take on all sorts of different forms, don't they? Blame shifting. Lies are a few I just mentioned from Genesis 3. Anger is a way in which we hide ourselves. Some people, you move to an addictive sort of behavior using drugs and alcohol to hide so they don't feel the pain of their shame. Some people use something like cutting. You know, the beauty of cutting for those who do that is it takes on a, a many, does many things for them. It, it addresses their shame to some degree. They believe it's what they deserve. It also gives a chemical, a rush, as a double benefit of giving them the sense of, of purging their blood. Because they understand deep down, it, it's, somewhat, it's neurotic, but it also kind of makes sense too. That we understand that our shame is not simply at surface level, it goes down to the very core of our DNA. And it would take us to pour that out in order to deal with our shame. Some people use independence, some people use social interaction, they just stay so busy, so busy, so busy that they don't have to listen to the voices in their head that speak to them of their unacceptability. And for many of you as Christians that you have never, you've never experienced the full mountaintop experience and the joy of being a Christian because what you've done, instead of moving into the joy of being God's child and all that you are and him accepting and loving you and changing you and making you unblemished in his sight, is instead you have simply covered yourself up with religious fig leaves. Tons of church activities. And, is, and, and what happens so often in the church life is if someone calls you out on your sin, you feel immediately exposed and you don't know where to go. Because you haven't rightly applied the gospel to your shame. It affects the deepest part of our relationships, our marriages. Some of you have never known your spouse very well. Some of you can only do certain things in the dark. That's shame. And it needs to be addressed. We've used darkness and lies and blaming and work and busyness to hide ourselves. So what's yours? I have made you very uncomfortable this morning. What is the root of your shame? For many of you, many of you, you can point back to a singular event, a singular place, a singular relationship, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. The word that was said, the thing that was done to you, the deed that you did that you know that God can't, you just think God can't forgive me of this. Does your shame have a name? Some of you have named it. And how is it affecting your life? How is it affecting your marriage? How is it affecting your ability to interact in the Christian community? See, some of you go to community groups, and we promise it's supposed to be this place where people do, do life together, and they're one-anothering, but you can never feel the one-anothering if you're holding yourself back, and you never open yourself up to anybody. So it won't simply do to identify and understand our shame and say, there it is. We must give it something powerful. And here's what I want you to see is I want you to see and where I want to go with the cross this morning is that Jesus identifies with your shame. One of the most poignant experiences of shame is the sense of loneliness that you have. That you're the only one who has this scar. Even those who have a shame, live in shame in community like lepers back in Jesus' days, they were ashamed even though they were with a bunch of other people who had the same issue as them, but it's such a singular experience. Well, Jesus came to take part, to identify with your shame by experiencing it. Let's look at the cross together. The suffering of Jesus, as I said last week, was absolutely and certainly physical, but it was far more than physical suffering that was so great on the cross. What was far more than the physical suffering was the suffering of shame that Jesus experienced there. Why did they choose to crucify people? They had swifter ways to kill people that would get the job done and be done with it for the day. 
Or they had more painful ways to kill people than the cross. Why the cross? Romans loved this form of torture and death and execution because of the undignity that it did to people. It humiliated those that they killed. It was to end them in every possible way. And we see this in the fact that Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. They were not allowed. They could be beheaded. They could have all sorts of execution, but they cannot be crucified because a Roman citizen could not have to be stooped to this level of execution. Pliny the Younger, the Roman historian, says this. It's an interesting quote about this. He says, even if we are threatened, he's speaking to Romans, even if we are threatened with death, we may die free men. But the executioner, the veiling of the head, the very word cross, should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his very thoughts, his eyes, his ears. For it is not only the actual occurrence of these things or the endurance of them, but it is the very liability of them, the expectation, nay, the mere mention of them, that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. A free man, a Roman citizen, could not touch this. And they crucified victims to, to crush them, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally. It's interesting, even in Greek and Roman romances, in heroic stories, the hero and the heroine, they would, at times in the stories, they would be crucified, but they would never stay on the cross. At some point, they would be saved. Because no hero could stay on a cross. It was too shameful. To die to death on a cross was utterly shameful. It was a curse. But I want you to see that Jesus' experiences and his suffering was not just shameful in a general way, but in those very words that I used earlier, the words that are most poignantly described, that most poignantly describe our shame are the experience of Jesus on the cross. Those words were what? Nakedness, rejection, contamination. Jesus experienced all of these. In Mark 15, we saw that what did they do with his clothes? They stripped him. They stripped him down. They stripped him both of his clothes and of his dignity amidst all the mockering and all the jeering and all the spitting and all the beatings and all the nailing. The shaming of Jesus reaches its high point when they take his clothes off. For a Jewish man to be naked in front of others, that was the high point of being undignified. This is what they do to him. And not only was he exposed and naked in that way, he was exposed to the elements in a physical way. How would you like to hang out in the middle of the day in the Middle East on a cross? with dogs, ravenous dogs, and birds around you waiting to peck at you. That's the experience that Jesus had. He experienced nakedness and exposure. He also experienced rejection. The entire account in Matthew 15 shows us time after time again the mocking, the rejection that Jesus experienced. They pay fake homage to him. They call him Hail. They say, Hail, King of the Jews. Where do they kick Jesus out to go crucify him? They kick him out of the city, just like the goats in Leviticus 16. He is sent outside of the city, in verse 21, they get Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for him. You know why they would do that? To display Jesus' weakness. Particularly as a man, is there anything worse than being exposed as, as, as a weak person? And that's what they were doing to Jesus. Those who walked past Jesus, we saw in verse 29 of Mark 15, they made fun of him. The chief priests mocked him. And even, even the other guys on the cross made fun of Jesus. The entire account is meant to display his rejection. And Isaiah 53 says he was unworthy. He was an object of scorn. But third, he also experienced contamination. Those who died on a cross would often lose their bowels in the process. Jesus was most likely crucified on a used cross. A used cross. I bet it wasn't cleaned. If you understand Jewish and Old Testament Jewish practices, if you were around anything dead at all, you were unclean. 
In every way, Jesus is becoming undignified and contaminated here. And then they also, they spat on him. And literally what it says in the Greek there in Mark 15 is that they kept spitting on him. It was a perpetual process while he died. There is no, there's no act uniformly around the world that's more shameful to, to, to label someone as shameful than to spit upon them. And yet he stayed there on the cross and he endured all this. Why? Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, He will not turn away from the mocking and he will not turn away from the spitting. Why would he not turn away? Because he wanted to endure and experience and identify and then remove our shame. Third section, we've got to apply this. We've got to understand it theologically. What's going on here with Jesus' experience, our shame? Jesus experienced naked, nakedness, rejection, and contamination. But what we looked at so far is in those things, in that experience of shame, it's been horizontal. It's been the physical life. It's been in front of other people. But more importantly than all, it's he experienced the same things before God the Father. It was not simply before men. The profound and ineffable truth of the cross is that in his suffering, Jesus took on himself everything that contaminates you and me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it is the heart of the gospel. He who knew no sin, perfect, blameless, uncontaminated, absolutely perfect in every way, became sin. Everything that you have done, everything that has been done to you, he took the stain of it upon himself so that what? So that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And so all the stains of our sin were placed upon him. And understand he was rejected and he was left open and naked and exposed even before God. There was no other lamb for him. There was no other garment There was no priest in between Jesus and God the Father. He experienced all the wrath. He experienced all the rejection. And then what happens at the end? As we read last week, he was forsaken by the Father. He didn't simply experience the horizontal shame. He experienced ultimately the vertical shame that we have before God. He took care of our sin and the stain of it before holy and mighty and beautiful gods. And I said last week that was the doctrine of propitiation where God takes our wrath where Jesus takes the wrath that we deserved upon himself, this is what is called the doctrine of expiation, where he removes and cleanses us of all our sin and takes it upon himself. It is on this day, the ultimate day of atonement, that Jesus is both the goats. He is the goat who is slaughtered and sacrificed to pay for the sins of the people, but he's also the second goat. And where does the second goat go in Leviticus 16? Outside the camp, outside of the community, never to be seen again. That's why it says in Psalm 103, verse 12, and you know this verse, you've heard it, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That is the gospel in the Psalms. The wonder of what is going on here is that Jesus is not simply willing to endure shame, but is it through enduring such shame that Jesus has, has dealt with our sin, the shames of the sins that we have committed, the sins committed against us. The root of all shame was dealt with on the cross. It was crushed there. And Jesus is one for us forgiveness. He is also one for us cleansing and beautification. For your soul is now washed clean, and you are declared before the Lord beautiful and acceptable. That's the point of the Day of Atonement. So how do we experience this? This confidence, 
this assurance, this assurance, the joy and the refreshment of being clean and feeling clean. You ever been dirty for a really long time? Maybe going camping for like three days? There ain't nothing better than jumping in a hot shower. If you've lived your whole life feeling contaminated, feeling rejected for the way that you look, the way that you appear, for the things that you have done or that have been done to you, and suddenly you get washed clean, that is a joyous experience. So how do we experience that? The experience of the truth, the, the joy and freedom that is caught up in this, I think it's caught up, is, is experience of the process of some truth rhythms in our life, some rhythms that God has given us. And it is the same process from the first day in which you become a believer and you, you, you rest and trust upon Jesus' work for you on the cross as it is on the day that you die. Let me talk about some of the rhythms that you need to do on a daily basis. And if you're not a believer and you never lay your shame down at the foot of the cross, this is what you do today as well. So you're here, you're in the same footing as this person who's been a Christian for 40 years. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to remove the fig leaves. You've got to take them away. 1 John 1, 7 through 9 says this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Bring the shameful things you have done before the light of God's grace. That's a sweet privilege that we have. Bring your anger, bring your hiding, bring your addictions, bring your selfishness, bring your failure to live in community, to make commitments, bring your unwillingness to be committed to anyone or anything, to live vulnerably, bring it to the Lord and lay it at his feet and say, I will be exposed before you. Would you be willing to do that? Whether you're willing to, whether you're trying to, to, to cover up some sort of shameful sin that was done to you or something that you have done in your past, would you come and, and, and name it? Would you say, this is, what it, this is what they did. This is what I did on this day. Would you, I stand before you, God, and this is what I've done. This is what's been done to me. Remember, would you bring the roots of your shame into the light to the Lord? And it is important that you bring your shame to the Lord first and foremost. Ed Welch says this, shame argues for silence, but its most serious deception is its insistence that our problem is with the judgments of people around us more than the judgment of God. Though we can certainly feel our shame before people, our deepest shame is before God. Only then is it before other human beings. You have to start with your shame before the Lord. The fact that you're a broken, sinful person before him, that you have sinful things have been done to you and that you have done, that you've reacted falsely. So we begin with confessing our sins to the Lord. And then after you confess to the Lord, then what do you do? You can go confess to other people. You can be to verbalize what you have done. You start with someone safe. It would be pastoral abuse of me for you to say, for me to say that you need to get up today and share the worst stories of your life, the worst things that you have done. But you go find a spouse, a friend, a counselor who can't legally tell anybody anyways. Tell somebody who is safe in a place that is safe what has gone on in your life. You've got to expose it to the light. See, it says in 1 John 7 that when we have exposed, we live in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The root of fellowship the root of fellowship is the confessing of our shame. It is the place where we begin to confess our need for the Lord. So would you be willing to remove the fig leaves today and come before the Lord? Here's the second part of the rhythm. So you, you remove the fig leaves, you stand naked before God, and then you say this. If you can imagine a spouse doing this before a husband and confessing sin, this is what it's like. But in the fact of unclothing and undressing before the Lord and letting him see you in all your uncleanliness, 
within that inherent in that, the next thing has to be, would you wash me and would you clothe me? And so that is the prayer you pray today. You confess your, uh, your shame, you confess your guilt, and then you say, God, would you wash me? Would you make me clean? And then would you robe me in the righteousness of Christ? Our hymns understand this. The greatest hymns we have understand this. One of the great lines from the hymn, Rock of Ages, it goes like this. Nothing in my hand I bring. That's the nakedness. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul. That's how he's describing himself. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Would you make that a rhythm in your life? Would you, would you put that hymn on your window, your mirror in your, in your bathroom? When you walk out of the shower, and would you cry that out to the Lord on a daily basis? May it be the first thing that you see and the last thing you see at night. What might this look like in community to do this? Or to create a rhythm? I heard a story about a, a, a staff team from a church in which they were at a retreat and they're about to have the Lord's Supper together. And, and the person who was leading the retreat said, what I want you to do right now is I want you to take out a journal. I want you to write down the sin, that thing that you thought you could never, ever, ever tell anybody ever at all. And after they wrote that, he said, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to pass it to the person on your right. The person on your right, here's what I want you to do. As they're going to take the Lord's Supper, as they're going to take the bread and the cup, I want you to write down how the Lord has made them acceptable despite that sin and how Jesus has washed them clean and removed those sins as far as the east is from the west. And I want you to say that over them. Preach to them the gospel. And then I want you to take the bread that represents God's body who took God's wrath and take the cup that represents God's blood poured out for you that washed you clean. That's the gospel. That's the rhythm of running to the fountain and saying, I need to be clean and be washed. And here's the beautiful truth of the gospel is that when we do that, as it says in 1 John 9, that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. In fact, this is the very reason why Jesus came. The image of a bride and a bridegroom is so fitting in this. This is why he came. Ephesians 5, did a wedding last week. This is the, 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 the chapter and verse Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is why he came. To be the husband who looks at you and all of your nakedness and you are contaminated and you're unclean, but he washes you and robes you in the jewels of his righteousness. That is a beautiful God, and that is a beautiful Savior. If you don't trust me, would you trust an old dead white guy? John Calvin says it this way, the gospel portrays the Son of God as stripped of his clothes, that we may know the wealth gained for us by his nakedness. For it shall dress us in God's sight. God willed his Son to be stripped, that we should appear free with the angels in the garments of his righteousness. you embrace that? One final, one final thing to say. I'm going to give this, try to drive this image home. And I gave this story a couple of years ago, but it's such an apt story. And so many of you were here. I'm going to give it again. I heard the account of a man and a wife who had been married many, many years. But they never experienced the intimacy and the joy that they wanted. The husband in particular just kept feeling like his wife was hiding from him. And he couldn't figure out why. And the reason was that his wife was indeed hiding. She was living a lie. She was was hiding from him the fact that in her past was significant abuse, beginning in her childhood and then again in a violent way in her college years. 
And then in response to her abuse, this woman, during her college days and her early part of her adult life, lived a very promiscuous lifestyle. She never told her husband these things. And then after she became a believer, she and her husband, who would be her husband, met. And while they were engaged, she still hadn't had the security and found herself in the arms of another man one night. She never told her husband, married him anyways, never shared her past or her deep, dark secrets. But after many years of hiding the truth, she realized in order to have the marriage that she wanted to have, the intimacy that she wanted to have, she had to come clean about her abuse, the things that had been done to her, and the things that she had done, some of them done, done to him. And she believed that this truth would devastate her husband. She believed that it would send him away, that he would run for the hills, that there was no way he would stay in the marriage. In fact, she believed that if he had known these things, he would have never married her because she was damaged goods anyways. And after telling him, the woman stood there utterly exposed, fearing that her husband would leave, and that's exactly what he did. Turned around, walked out the door. She didn't think she, she, didn't, she wondered if she'd ever see him again. Would he ever come back? Would he ever forgive her? But it, a little while later, he comes back in the house. He had gone to a store, and he had bought for her a perfectly new, clean, white nightgown. And he said, I want you to undress in front of me, and then I want you to put this nightgown on. He said, listen, I choose to see you not by what you have done or what has been done to you, but I instead see, choose to see you solely in the light of what Jesus has done for you and forgiving you and cleansing you. He embraced her, he prayed for her, and he wept over her. That's what a good husband does. That's what your husband did for you. But the purchase of his linen garment cost him his life. He had to enter into your shame to identify with you so that he could then wash you with his righteousness. Listen, would you embrace that today? I cannot even begin to help. This is a long process. For some of you, the things that you've experienced in your life and that you have done, this is going to be a hard truth to swallow. But would you begin the process today? Would you fall on your feet before him and say, this is what I've done. I foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. With that in mind, let's pray. Would you have the guts to pray it now? In your heart of hearts right now, would you lay before the Lord that thing, that place, that event, that act? And would you say this before the Lord? My Savior, would you wash me and would you clothe me in your righteousness? And then hear the words of your Savior who says, yes, that is the assurance of pardon, the assurance of blessing. Gracious God, I pray that we would enter a process, that, this, that that pattern right there would be a daily occurrence, that more and more as we run into your arms as our groom, as our Savior, as the one who has washed us and cleansed us, that, Lord, you would give us joy, joy in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, we would look forward to one day when we, there, will be no, there will be no more need for any more washings, but we will be your perfect, spotless bride in heaven. Lord, may that day come soon. Hold us tight until then. In your name I pray. Amen.